Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. We are talking about the Curry-Howard isomorphism in Chapter 3 of the podcast. I'm Aaron Stump, enjoying a short commute on a beautiful day, unseasonably warm day, in the wonderful state of Iowa. Anyway, uh, so last time we talked a bit about formulas and types and the idea that, well, if constructive proofs and programs are going to be identified as they are on the Curry-Howard isomorphism, then the formulas that those constructive proofs prove and the types that those programs have statically are also going to be identified. And so we talked a bit about the propositional uh, connectives, connectives of propositional logic like and and or, implies, not, which is really just defined as implies false. And they're sort of programming analogs under the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And if you're, you know, if you're a hardcore C programmer, you're not. <laughs> these aren't going to leap off the page at you. But if you're a little bit used to some of the ideas of functional programming, then a lot of these type constructs, like the the sum type, which corresponds to a disjunction, as I said last time, is the either type in Haskell, for example. Um, so, uh, and. We touched on the fact that, well, basically, for you can kind of play this game of, well, let's pick a logic and let's try to think about what its types and proofs look like as, I'm oh, sorry, its formulas and proofs look like as types and programs under the Curry-Hout isomorphism. And that's a, you know, it's a pretty cool game to play. And I thought about this a little more um, after I spoke uh, last time. It's kind of, when you look at first-order logic where you have these quantifiers, you know, so in first-order logic, you can make statements like, um, for all x, if f of x equals x, then f of f of x equals x, or something like that. I mean, that's just some random formula. You know, but the thing is, you can make quantified statements, and so you can introduce some variable into your formula by saying for all x, you're saying for any value, let's call it x, and in first-order logic, it's just of this just single amorphous domain um, of all the entities that you're allowed to speak about. Um, so anyway, you say for all x, and then you make some statement. Now, when you push this over the bridge to the, you know, <laughs> slide it through um, some portal to the programming side, these turn into um, this sort of an interesting point in the typing spectrum, which I hadn't really... Um, I was sitting there scratching my head about this as I was talking last time, and uh, I thought a little bit more about it. And I guess what we're getting is um, a typing feature that you do find in some advanced um, functional programming languages, which is that you have um, you have types that are able to they can express some kind of properties of of something that look like values or objects or whatever, um, but they're not program expressions. They come from a separate syntactic domain. Um, and uh, so an example that I can, comes to mind is Tim Sherd's Omega language. You can Google for this. This was a pretty cool language design of Tim, who uh, I have collaborated with in the past. And uh, it, Tim was a very creative contributor to functional programming research and had lots of cool ideas. And... Uh, so, and, and in Omega, as I recall, you have types that can, they can express properties or they can be um, constrained by indices. You know, so a famous example of this kind of thing is, say, you want to have a type that's kind of like the list type, except the type itself keeps track of how long the list is. And traditionally in dependent type theory, this is called the vector type, 
or to penalty type programming maybe. This is the vector type. So you have, instead of a list of A's, you have a vector of A's of length n, where n is some natural number. Now, in again, at my, I haven't looked at omega in years, but um, it's my hazy, somewhat hazy recollection of omega uh, is that you can form this kind of type. I'm, I'm sure you can form that kind of type. But that this nat that you have as an index, they call these indices, sort of arguments to, to type-level functions. Um, that's uh, Well, there's a distinction between parameters and indices. But for a vector, it's an index. It's something that changes um, uh, as you dig into the data. Um, you know, so, so you have a vector of A's of like 3, and as you dig in a little bit, you're going to find a tail of that, which is a vector of A's of like 2. And so that you see this index is changing this length. Anyhow, um, so that, that length in omega, as I recall, is that it's not uh, a value from the regular programming language. It's a value from some syntactically separate domain specially set aside for indices for these types. Because when you have these indices, you know, they, they're, it's, very, it's quite powerful because you can control um, the form of your data more. You can do things like, for example, say you're writing a map function you know, usually map takes a list and a function and applies the function to all the elements of the list, giving you back the resulting list of outputs. So sort of like list of inputs, function, and you get the list of outputs. And certainly this operation preserves the length of the list. Uh, and in a language like Haskell, with just the, the map function from the, the standard library, and I should note that I, I believe, and it's always a little hard to know because Haskell has so many advanced typing features, I believe you can do these kind of indexed types um, in Haskell, similar to what I'm saying about Omega. Anyway, you, you know, you, in Haskell you do map, it just takes a list of A's, an A to B function, and returns a list of B's. But with indices, you can say, I take a vector of A's of length N, and an A to B function, and I'll give you a vector of B's of length N, of the same length. And so just having these indices lets you, for, to your type constructors, lets you express some properties of functions that uh, otherwise you would, wouldn't be expressed and wouldn't be checked, of course, statically. You, you will check now that, that the map function on vectors really does preserve the length. It doesn't somehow drop an element or sneak an extra element in or something. So... Um, and under the creator isomorphism, the types of first-order logic kind of correspond to these kind of types where you have a separate domain of values that can be mentioned in the types, but you're not actually mentioning the program expressions themselves in the types. There's sort of two different realms. And this is sort of an appealing language design. I remember, I believe it was Bob Harper who kind of quite some years ago, has thought on this may have changed, I was talking about sort of like, does your language have a phase distinction with and how it treats dependent types. And as I recall, what he was speaking about by that was you shouldn't have these, you might wish to have set up your language so that the indices to types, like the lengths of these vectors, are all, that's just compile time data that's all erased. You don't need that at runtime. And for those kind of designs where these are not program expressions that index types, but rather things from some other domain, then you can erase them. They don't really, you might write them down as an annotation inside some program somewhere, but it's not really part of the program. It's like, it's a hint to the compiler to say, oh, the index you need here is this, in, in case the compiler can't figure it out. But it's not an actual program expression, and hence it can be erased. 
Uh, and that's first order logic types correspond to such a typing uh, feature because in the first order logic types, those variables that we're quantifying over, yes, they can be mentioned in the rest of the formula. So you can say for all x, p of x implies q of x, and now you're, you're mentioning this x later in your formula. But that x doesn't range over proofs. I mean, again, under the Curry-Howard isomorphism, we're talking about would that variable range over program expressions. Well, back on the logic side, we're talking about could that x range over a proof of a formula? No, no. First order logic doesn't let you make statements about the proofs of first order logic, unless, of course, you have set aside a domain, you know, you've carved out a, a domain to describe these proofs uh, as part of your background mathematical universe of entities you're speaking about. So in other words, you could kind of have an encoding of proofs and you could make statements about these encoded proofs, but you're not directly talking about the proofs of first order logic themselves. For that, you need what I mentioned last time, so-called dependent types. And I thought I was going to tell you a little more about that this time, but I wanted to kind of clear up this bit about index types. So uh, that's all I have for you today, and thank you for listening.